Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. We are currently in the midst of a verse-by-verse study of the Gospel of Luke. And the text this morning is in the 18th chapter, verses 15 through 17. If your copy of Scripture is not open to that text, I invite you to make your way there now. The 18th chapter of Luke records some of the most familiar passages in the New Testament. We remember them likely because Jesus employs several short but very pointed, meaningful parables to illustrate the primary theme of this chapter. And the theme is this, that those who become citizens of his kingdom, Christ's kingdom, must come the way of humble faith. Now, last Sunday morning, we examined one of those parables which portrayed two men, both of whom went down to the temple to pray. One was self-righteous and self-congratulatory. The other was a humble, repentant sinner. And Jesus declared at the end of that parable that the humble, repentant sinner went home justified, that is right with God, rather than the self-righteous one. In our text today, the Lord Jesus illustrates the same point, this time not with a parable or a story, but with a real life situation that happened. Let's read about it beginning in verse 15, Luke chapter 18. And they were bringing even their babies to him so that he should touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking them. But Jesus called for them saying, permit the children to come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter at all. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Now, I often tell us that when we read a passage of scripture, we need to ask some certain diagnostic questions of the text. We do that to discern what the Holy Spirit is teaching us, how he wants us to change. And we all should do that individually as we have private Bible study time at home or at work. And we attempt to do that Sunday by Sunday here in this room when we gather. So let's be alert, good listeners today, and ask some questions as we walk through this brief passage. Uh, The first is in verse 15. And they were bringing their babies to him so that he would touch them. My question is, why were parents bringing their small children? That's the word. In fact, the first time he uses the word, he uses the term for baby, brepos in the Greek, to to Jesus to touch. As I read that several times through this week, I couldn't help but chuckle in my study when I think of the many first-time parents in our church who do just the opposite. For the first six months of a baby's life, they try to make sure that no other human touches him. I remember when we brought our first child home from the hospital 14 years ago, we had a bottle of antiseptic in every room. Every time the pacifier fell on the floor, it had to be boiled or thrown out and get another one. By the time the fourth child rolls around, you just (laughs) stick it back in the mouth. These apparently were not first-time parents. They were bringing their children, holding them out to Jesus, wanting him to hold them, to bless them. So this practice of bringing children to respected teachers and individuals in the community for a blessing goes all the way back Uh, In the Bible, to the book of Genesis, I believe, Joseph brought his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, to his father, Jacob, so that he could touch them and bless them. 
this tradition continued with respected teachers up to Jesus' day, there is incredible power in the human touch. I'm not saying we Christians can zap people with the Holy Spirit as some televangelist would have you believe by touching them. But it is interesting how many times in the New Testament that touch is connected with blessing. For example, Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law with a touch. He, He made a clay compound in the soil and placed it on a blind man's eyelids and he was healed. He even touched lepers, people that no one else would touch. It's not just Jesus. The apostle Paul and Barnabas had hands laid on them as they were sent out to be the world's first intercultural missionaries. The young pastor Timothy, who was often anxious and nervous about his calling, was reminded in a letter by Paul to remember the time when hands were laid on him by by others who believed that they saw in him this gift of teaching. And of course, uh, Jesus' brother James says that if we're sick, we're to call the elders and they are to lay hands on them and pray. One of the most famous gospel songs of the 20th century was Bill Gaither's, He Touched Me. Humans in every epoch of history have understood the power of touch to communicate. So it doesn't surprise us then to find a line of anxious parents holding their small children in their arms, waiting their turn for Jesus to bless them. What is a little surprising is that Jesus' inner circle of disciples have a a very odd reaction to this. They become upset. This is the disciples' distress. It says, but when the disciples saw it, that is Jesus touching these babies, they began rebuking them, these parents. So it leads to a question, why in the world would the disciples rebuke parents for wanting Jesus to hold and bless their small children? Well, we're not told. But I think we can put together what we know about these disciples and have a very educated guess. Um, First, in the ancient world, children were viewed as rather unimportant until they reached a certain age. They were even sometimes viewed as personal property. That is likely why God has put so much in the Bible, both Old and New Testament, about his attitude towards children, which is very different. For example, Psalm 127 says, Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. How different that is than the disciples' attitude towards children. I think perhaps also these disciples had a a sense of misplaced loyalty and protection of Jesus' time. They knew he was very busy healing people, teaching from town to town, praying. He would rise early to pray and they maybe saw in him some fatigue and and they were trying to protect him from these people that they thought were impinging on his time. And thirdly, I think maybe they were concerned for his health and safety. After all, Jesus had made some enemies among the Pharisees and some of them already determined to kill him. And so maybe they didn't have time to vet these people very thoroughly. And perhaps they thought someone might try to do him physical harm. At the very least, I'm sure at least some of these children had runny noses and coughs Maybe they were concerned for Jesus' health. But I think the real reason is they were a little jealous. Because when they first started walking with Jesus, it was just them. All day long, it was just them. And they could ask him any question. And and he uh, was an audience of them. But as Jesus would go from town to town and perform miracles, it, it was like a snowball gaining momentum. People began to follow him and come out to him until... Every hour of the day was consumed, and I think they were just a little tired of that. 
and they wanted Jesus for themselves. We're not told. But whatever the reason, here is the picture. You have a bunch of big, strong, burly men trying to keep sweet, little, innocent children away from Jesus. And that's a pretty ugly scene, don't you think? So how does Jesus react? Now, I say the word innocent children with tongue in cheek, as you'll see why. That leads to verse 16, which says, but Jesus called them saying, permit the children to come to me and do not hinder them. This is the Savior scolding the disciples. Now Luke's gospel does not overtly say, I will grant you that Jesus was angry. But as you read these verses out loud, I think it comes through in the Lord's tone. Permit them, he says, allow them to come to me, hinder them not. Stop being an obstacle to them, in other words. Now we don't have to wonder if Jesus was angry because in Mark's gospel, this same story is told and in Mark 10, 6, Mark says this, but when Jesus saw it, that is the disciples keeping children away from him, he was moved with indignation. Does it surprise you that Jesus became indignant, very angry? It shouldn't because there are a number of times in the New Testament where Jesus is seen as angry. Anger is not a sin. Anger can be a sin if it's for the wrong reasons and handled the wrong way. But Jesus got angry. I think of at least three occasions when Jesus got very angry. On one occasion, he was in the home of a Pharisee on the Sabbath day, and there was a man presented to him who had a withered hand, the scripture says, that made him uh, unable to work and make a living. And so Jesus healed this man, but there seems to be no compassion at all among the Pharisees for this man's condition. All they cared about is to see whether or not Jesus would heal him on the Sabbath. Would he break some Sabbath rule? Jesus, knowing their heart, became angry and scolded them. Probably the most famous time that Jesus became angry is when he cleansed the temple. Do you remember? He went up there to worship and it had become a den of robbers, all kinds of strange goings forth, money changers taking advantage of travelers and it made him angry and he fashioned a whip and chased them all out and said, you have made my father's house, which is to be a house of prayer for all nations, a den, of, a den of thieves. But there's another occasion, really two of them, at least in the Bible, where Jesus became angry and it had to do with children. On one occasion, he says, if anyone would harm one of these little children, it would be better that a millstone would be tied around his neck and that he would be cast into the depths of the sea. And then there's this occasion where he became angry at his own disciples, his inner circle, because they were trying to prevent or hinder children from getting to Jesus. Both of those things made him angry. Now, we hope and pray that no one in this church would ever intentionally harm a child. But I think sometimes even well-meaning Christians are guilty of hindering Christians from getting to Jesus. How so? I think in at least four ways. One is by bad theology. A theology that teaches that a person can't be saved until they can write a PhD level dissertation on the gospel. It's not what the scripture says. In fact, the Bible says we must come as little children. The second way we hinder children is by lack of clarity about the gospel. A few Saturday mornings ago, uh, my children asked me to take them to a nearby park to play. And it had just finished raining. It was rather cool. And so we were the first to get to the park after the rain. And it was clear that whoever was last at the park left in a hurry 
probably because of a downpour, because they left behind a very nice Frisbee. And I'm old enough to remember the 1970s when Frisbee was all the rage. And so I was teaching my children how to throw a Frisbee as best I could remember. But my youngest daughter is only four years old and she stands about that tall. And when we would throw the Frisbee, it was always just out of her reach. She just couldn't quite get it. And it frustrated her. And it reminded me of something one of my seminary professors said about preaching. He said, young men, when you preach, don't toss theological Frisbees over people's head, just out of reach, because that just frustrates them. And I think we do that unintentionally with children. We, We use too many $10 phrases and words when the simple gospel is what we're called to teach. I think another way we hinder children is by our poor example, saying one thing and living another way. And sometimes telling children that Christ is first place and, and yet every time a soccer tournament comes in conflict with a church schedule, guess which one wins out? And so children learn that not always what we say, but what we do is most important. And I think most important, uh, they learn by our bad attitude. When I say we, I'm talking about the church writ large. There is a congregation here in Dallas-Fort Worth that has a sign out front that says, this church is for people 55 years of age and older. You may think I'm kidding, I'm not. They announce that their congregation is for people 55 years and older. Now, most of us in our churches are not that overt But what among us has not seen in a Baptist church when a a baby cries out, maybe over two or three times, someone gives them a stare that could kill or invites the mother to take that child to the nursery or find another place. God forgive us. The application is, is pretty straightforward here. So now let's look at his explanation of why children should not be hindered from getting to him. It's found in verse 16, the second half of that verse. He says, hinder them not for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these, that is these children. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. Now some have read that, that children are naturally innocent, that children don't sin. Those people have never been parents. If you've been a parent more than two years, you know that children sin. In fact, as soon as they can put a noun and a verb together, they lie. (laughs) They take things that are not theirs. They have unjust anger towards their their siblings. In short, they act just like their mother and dad. (laughs) But even if it were theoretically true that children do not sin before a certain age, we know theologically the Bible teaches that in sin were we conceived. We say here that sinners, we are sinners by nature and by choice. We sin because we're sinners. That's who we are. We're born that way. So what Jesus is not saying is that the kingdom of heaven is full of innocent people like these children. He's saying only those who get in the kingdom are those who are like these children. That is, they have the characteristics of very small children. And so I think all of us are asking ourselves the same diagnostic question now. If the only people that get into heaven are people who are like children, what are children like? 
What then are the characteristics of small children? Well, I, I've listed four here. I suspect you can add to that list. First of all, small children are helpless, aren't they? Left to their own devices, they would surely die. If you're a parent, you can remember the first night after you brought your child home from the hospital and it hits you like a load of bricks that you are responsible for keeping this thing alive for the next 18 years. What a great, great responsibility that is because children are helpless. They, they cannot feed themselves or clothe themselves or medicate themselves. Secondly, they are utterly dependent and trust in their provider. Have you ever met a two-year-old that sits in the bed at night worrying if their mother's going to feed them the next morning? They intrinsically trust the provision of the one that gave them life and is responsible for their provision. Among children, very small children, there's a lack of pretense. Have you noticed? They have not lived long enough to have any skins on the wall. They can't point to any merit or achievement. So theirs is a life free of self-righteousness and pride, at least to a certain age. And one of the things that we love about very small children is they still have a sense of wonder about the world. They have not seen it all. They have not been everywhere, man. They have not become cynical and jaded about this life like many of us have. My friends, this is exactly the way Jesus says we have to enter his kingdom. We have to spiritually be utterly helpless. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed who recognize that they are spiritual paupers and left to our own devices, we surely would die in our sins. The truth is we are dead in our sins. We would stay in our sins. And so the Holy Spirit opens our eyes and regenerates us so that we cry out to a Savior to do for us what we can't do on our own, to make us right, to justify us in the eyes of a holy God. We have to be utterly helpless for him to do that. And then we have to utterly trust in the provider for our salvation. We say it like this, grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone. Your salvation is not a team effort between you and God. He gets all the glory. And we simply trust in his provision of salvation. It reminds us of that great gospel hymn by Augustus Toplady. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Vile, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. That's the attitude of a child. If you don't provide for me, I'll perish. And then thirdly, we must have a lack of pretense Again, I said, that's what we love about small children. They just tell the truth about the situation. One of our favorite children's stories is the emperor's new clothes. And all the people saw the emperor who thought he was wearing a fine suit of clothing, went along with it and pretended they could see it too until one little boy said, the emperor doesn't have any clothes on. Children haven't learned to stifle enthusiasm for the sake of decorum. If they don't understand something, they just ask about it. And what we love about children, parents, is uh, 
but also scares us to death when we take them out in public. <laughs> they have no filter. In just a couple of Sunday mornings, we're coming, Lord willing, to a passage of Scripture here in the 18th chapter about a blind man who lived in the city of, of Jericho. In fact, let's just turn there now. Staying in this 18th chapter, I need to turn over one page of my Bible and come to the 35th verse of Luke 18. Luke 18, 35, as Jesus was approaching Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the road begging. Now hearing a crowd going by, he began to inquire what this was. And they told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by and he called out saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who led the way were sternly telling him to be quiet, just like you parents tell your kids to be quiet. But he kept crying out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and commanded that he be brought to him. And when he came near, he questioned him, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and began following him, glorifying God. And when all the people saw it, they gave praise to God. When you have a childlike faith, you don't care who hears. You have no sense of decorum. You just are desperate for the gift of salvation that Jesus gives. This is how Jesus calls his own today. It's one of the primary reasons that we do baptisms in public. This is your public profession of faith in Jesus Christ and your allegiance to him. Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me before men, I'll be ashamed of you for my father who is in heaven. And, and dear friends, as I look around, some of you need to be baptized. You have put your faith and trust in Christ privately, but he calls you to obedience, to follow him in public baptism. And then the fourth thing that we love about children is their sense of wonder, of awe and amazement. Awe and amazement of God always results in the th same thing. It results in worship. In Isaiah 6, when Isaiah got a picture of the father high and lifted up, sitting on his throne in the temple, his train filled the temple. He went down on his face and he worshiped. In the New Testament, when Saul was struck blind by the Shekinah glory of the risen Lord Jesus, he called him Lord. He worshiped him. But I'm thinking now of a story that was told about some sisters who lived in a little village called Bethany. Jesus had close friends, siblings, Mary, Martha, and their brother Lazarus. And anytime he was near Jerusalem, he would stay in their home. And Martha was scurrying around, trying to get things in order, cook a meal, make sure the house was clean and orderly. Her sister Mary went and plopped down right at the feet of Jesus. And Martha went to Jesus and said, make Mary help me. Jesus said, Martha, Martha. You're busy over many things. But he says, your sister Mary has chosen what is, is better. And what is better than busyness and making out your to-do list and sticking to it is sitting in awe and wonder like a child at the feet of Jesus. I have never once been in a room of two-year-olds and they produced a to-do list. And so I think there's some very needed responses to this passage of Scripture among believers. First, I want to address parents. 
You, you may think I'm speaking out of both sides of my mouth at this point because privately when you've asked me, how do I know when my child is ready to be baptized or make a public profession? I'll say, don't hurry, don't manipulate, wait on the Lord. And I want to reemphasize, I still believe that, try to practice that with my own children. But I also want to say, don't ever pour cold water on any child's enthusiasm for the gospel. Encourage it every step of the way. Don't hinder them, encourage them. Make sure they know the gospel, and that's what I always say. At least they have to know the, the facts of the gospel, that they're a sinner and Jesus died for sinners. They have to understand at a childlike level what sin is before they're ready. But more important than they know every detail of the facts of the gospel is that they see the gospel lived out every day by their mom and dad. That, I think, is the greatest danger of hindering them. After the first service, I had a couple come to me as I was greeting guests, and, and she was nearly in tears, and she said, I feel so guilty after that sermon because our children are grown and have been grown for many years, and we didn't do it as best we could. And I said, you know what? I tell parents that the only children that deserve perfect parents are perfect children. And here's another thing I should have added to the list about children. They are forgiving, aren't they? Children don't expect you to be perfect. They expect you to tell the truth and be consistent. And so when we fail in front of our children, maybe in an amazing way, all is not lost. Even as you confess your sins to the Lord, confess your sins to your children. Ask for their forgiveness. I also want to address the church, not just parents. We can also be guilty of hindering children. So we need to make sure, first of all, that they are welcome here, right? That, that we don't cloister ourselves away and make sure that there's never any spills and make sure that there's never any noise. We try to practice that on the third floor through the week. Um, when I came here 20 years ago, there, there were hardly any small children among the staff. But as we've added staff and, and younger staff, we have had a, a revival of small children among the staff, and it's a blessing. And I suspect almost any time of day, if you come up to the third floor to visit, you're, you're gonna have to watch out for little ones coming to visit their, their dad during the day. Praise the Lord, right? May that always be the case, that they're learning and, and growing. Welcome them, not, not only um, during the week, but, but on Sunday, make room for them. So what if they cry and can't pay attention? That's how we all learn. Love them, that's the key. And as I'm dwelling here for just a moment, I think all of us parents need to say a thank you to all of our preschool and children's workers, right? Because if you ever spend any time with them, you know they don't do it out of drudgery or duty, they do it out of love. And there's a great difference. And we can always use more of you who are using to, to spend your time and energy and talents loving on children and, and ultimately, that all comes back to valuing them. Remember the 127th Psalm said, children are a blessing from the Lord. Another translation says a gift from the Lord. And if you get a special gift, especially from someone very important, and I think the Lord qualifies, what should you do with it? You ought to take good care of it, right? You, you ought to put it in a special place, a place where it's safe, 
place where it, it can thrive. You ought to make the best use of it. You ought to prayerfully ask the Lord how we can best display it and use it. And so when we value children, that's exactly what we do. We, we make a good space for them and we value them and we protect them and, and we love them and we share it with, with other people. That's our prayer here. Not that a child is born into our church and, and grows up to be a hundred and dies here. That would be a rare exception. What we pray is that the Lord would use this church as a launching pad. As children are born and grow up and are taught, we send them off to college and the military and all over the world as arrows fired accurately for the Lord's glory. So hinder not the children. Jesus doesn't need you to protect him. Let the children come unto him and rejoice at how he blesses them and how he blesses us through them. Let's pray and thank the Lord. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this little passage of scripture. It's often overlooked between two famous stories, but it may be the most important one there because this is real world. Every day we either help or hinder children coming to you. And Father, I'm the first to admit we need great wisdom in dealing with the souls of children. We don't always know what is right, but you do. Father, we know at least a little that we're not to hinder them. We're never to dampen their enthusiasm. We're, we're not to dismiss them out of hand. We're to value them as a gift from you and treasure them and, and then depend upon you, Father. And really, it's not any different for children than adults. We shouldn't baptize any adult who doesn't confess their own sin and recognize their need of a Savior. And so we should not with children either. But Father, we want to give them every opportunity to know Jesus. We want to teach them the facts of the gospel at home and Sunday school and vacation Bible school at every opportunity. Lord, we want to equip parents that they can do that effectively. Father, we pray for the salvation of every child represented in this room today. Father, we pray that they would give you their best years, that you'd be glorified in and through the children of this church. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.